0: Good morning everybody, welcome back to the Memorations Podcast. Today I'm joined by my colleague Ramona Sluzarsic. Good morning Ramona.
1: Hello Darren, thanks for inviting me to this podcast. I've seen the previous recordings and I must say that I'm just delighted to be in such an excellent company, thank you.
0: Ah, Thanks very much for joining me. Um, For people who don't know Ramona, um, Ramona's a colleague of mine in Media Culture Heritage at Newcastle University and she works in the PR team teaching public relations, media and public relations and Ramona studied with us. She did her MA with us uh, quite a few years ago now and after a few years working in the world of PR came back to us to start uh, to, 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 to join the team as a lecturer. And it's a real pleasure to have, us, have her working with us and she's got some fascinating stories to share today. So um, Ramona, do, do you just in addition to my waffle do you want to give everybody a bit of a clearer picture of who you are what you do what your background is what you've done so far
1: um sure thank you um so like you said uh, i'm a product of newcastle university i'm the product of the course that now i'm teaching um so i graduated from newcastle university but before that happened um i spent some time in vietnam i took a year gap and that was Meant to be well, as the name suggests, just a year gap. But I just I really love the country, and um, I extended my year gap. So um, it's not something that I recommend to students. So if there are any students listening to this, do as I say, not as I do. Uh, but that actually gave me an idea of what public relations in Vietnam was like, and it inspired me to write my dissertation on that.
0: The broader question I was going to ask you is why study public relations um, uh, as an academic field and why study public relations from critical perspectives why is it important and how can you sort of tell some of the listeners who perhaps don't necessarily study public relations but will have heard of it as a term um, what why is it important and how can we think about it in relation to current events and things that are going on in the world at the moment
1: well, I think the current events clearly show us how vital communication is yeah. uh, for any organization whether it's it's a government uh, whether it's a commercial entity uh, we We all received emails from supermarkets telling us at the beginning of the pandemic how we how we should behave in shops, what we can do, what we can't, can we visit with others or not? This is all effective communication. Um, and if we look at it from a government perspective, those governments that had a very clear, effective message, backed up by transparent um, steps that were taken to, to tackle the pandemic, they have the best results. If you have an executive musing at the press conference whether a using of injection bleach is going to help alleviate the symptoms of the virus, then um medical entities have to, prompt, have to promptly respond to debunk that uh, piece of information and it causes tremendous confusion. Um, so definitely communication has been a vital element of handling this um, pandemic. Now it's not only uh, limited to government communication when we communicate with power and we communicate power to our citizens but also public relations can um, help uh, different entities and here I mean NGOs and NPOs and I would like to uh, uh, venture here to kind of a philosophical stance on public relations. So we are all familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs where there's five commonly um, discussed steps so, so we need to feel safe, we need to have this sense of belonging, our physiological needs have to be met and after that we, we seek prestige, we seek recognition and then we reach this fifth level of self-actualization when we feel like we can reach our potential. Now it's not that commonly known but uh, just before his death in 1970 Maslow considered another sixth level which is the level called transcendence. So he claimed that beyond those basic needs that we all have and those needs for uh, feeling loved, for having some recognition in terms of social status or career and, uh, and then perhaps some artistic um, like creative ambitions so beyond those creative ambitions he said that actually and if we think about it for a second all of them are kind of focused on the individual it's all about the self so what we need uh, for us, but he came up with the sixth level, which is self transcendence, which is beyond oneself. And this is something that I see really appeals to young people. And that's something that, uh, speaking humorously, PR can lead you. So, PR can lead you to self transcendence. What I mean by that is any campaign for an NGO, any campaign, any program um, designed to instigate a social change. Um, appeals to this need to feel connected with uh, other people around the globe. So we can see, for example, um, um, Fridays for Future is a movement that appeals to this need for young people to feel connected, but also express their sense of responsibility for other citizens globally. So what we do in England has an impact on citizens living in Uganda. Indonesia and vice versa so this level represents the need for global community essentially I
0: guess I guess that and I I understand exactly what you mean but just for the sake of playing devil's advocate the critical scholar in me says it's it's okay to it's okay to uh, create these campaigns that symbolize some kind of transcendence and and speak about community and collective interests but if 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 the people creating and you you would you'll be very very familiar with this this criticism if the companies um creating those campaigns are not actually behaving in that manner themselves Mm -hmm. behind the, the the public image or the persona of their leaders or business or whatever um, then actually this just becomes this just becomes a marketing tool that can create a particular image for a company whilst actually in, in reality they're not they're not following any of those values themselves. Well this
1: is a very valid point and that's definitely not something that we teach our students there's a term for that.
0: Go, go and go and do some trickery and then mislead people and tell them you're really nice whilst you don't
1: So what you were talking about is greenwashing, and many organisations engage in that. And um, what we teach our students is that, well, it's unethical, it creates damage to the society at large, but also not only to the, let's say, reputation of those organisations that get found out eventually, because they always will get found out but also it undermines our profession. And the problem for the PR profession is that it's a relatively new profession as well as a discipline. So we try to instill uh, in our students the sense of responsibility for upholding the standards and those standards are related to integrity, honesty. And those are things that Um, very often get compromised particularly in terms of political communication so if we think about like the last general election in the UK where we had those instances of one party establishing or just changing the name of the uh, Twitter account so it appeared there was an objective voice where it wasn't this is something utterly unethical but again it gives a bad name to our reputation to the reputation of our um discipline and i think this is a bit of a problem with public relations that you know there's this saying about shoemakers children being ill shod and it's the same case with public relations i think as an industry but also a discipline we need to make more effort in promoting the, 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 I don't want to say good side of PR because there should be only good side, there should be only this ethical side of PR base. Like as in you know sensational journalism, we have this dark side of PR which is basically based around spin. But like I said, we'll always get organizations that behave unethically but claim something else will always get found out. And here, uh, I would like to bring together those themes that we touched on already. So government PR, uh, cultural influences, but also bad reputation. So, closer to home, for a number of months now there's been a discussion over a takeover of Newcastle United Football Club. Yeah, that's
0: a great example. So yeah, on a more local level for us. Yeah. Be, so it's, it's
1: meant to be taken over by a Saudi-led consortium and those efforts are being stalled. Why? Because in 2018, uh, Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated at the saudi consulate in um in turkey now this is a very stark example of how public relations government public relations in this sense should not operate so if we go a little bit if we go a little bit back in the in in what uh, saudi government was trying to achieve before that happened um and again, like we have to think about the economy. So governments operate very similarly to um, um, corporate organizations. They also have to think about the, the, the bottom line, right? So we, we all know that the economy in Saudi is based mainly on oil resources and they're trying to move towards tourism. But to move towards tourism, they have to change their perception of, People have of the country uh, promote tur- promote uh, its cultural heritage, and also address some social issues. So we know that the law prohibiting women from driving cars has changed. However, we must remember that those activists that uh, advocated for this l- legal change are still in prison. So yes, this the was the pro-
0: law that prohibited women from driving in Saudi Arabia.
1: Yes. Yeah, so. Yeah. So according to the law, women can drive, whether no. this is the case on a practical level and um, we, we can't really say that it's been a, a massive success, but it did start a, an important social change. So this is something that Saudi Arabia used in their messages in 2017 and at the beginning of 2018 in the States and in the UK saying that Uh, MBS, so Mohammed bin Salman is modernizing the country. There were massive billboards both in states and in London saying that he brings a new face to Saudi Arabia. Now, uh, following that, visas for single female uh, visitors have been dropped um, and uh, unmarried couples can stay in hotels. So we can see that the country does something on the legislation level to encourage tourists to visit. However, we can't forget the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which at first the government blatantly denied. This is a, an example of crisis communication, which, which we teach as well what to do when things go wrong. Now, this is an extreme case of things going wrong, but when it was reported to the authorities by uh, Khashoggi's fiance, the government in Saudi issued a statement saying, "This is, this." is those allegations are completely baseless. Uh, Now we know that they were in, and and this is exactly what happened, he was murdered. uh, And uh, and a number of assassins were flown to Turkey because they knew that he was coming for his second visit to the consulate. So this really marred the reputation of the country itself on an international level. And I think this contributes to, um, the controversies surrounding the takeover of Newcastle United Football Club, which I think now it's not going to happen because the Human Rights Watch and other international, organization, uh, international organizations are trying to prevent that from happening. Why? Because this is this would be an example of sports washing. So a government in the, here we, we have it's a, it's a government-backed consortium trying to purchase. Uh, an entity in a foreign country and that would obviously create a positive image for Saudi Arabia and when I read local newspapers quite I can't disagree with people saying that it will bring investment here uh, the football club needs to be needs some support it's not going to come from within the UK well this is debatable so I understand that but Going through with this deal is basically giving the green light to Saudi um, kind of using this uh, takeover to kind of um, whitewash their reputation.
0: Is it being very well publicly reported that it is it is being held up on a human rights basis? Is that is that something you th- you think, or is that something you know is going on? Because been I keep I being told it's to do with copyright, uh, no, not copyright, it's to do with. Um,
1: Piracy, piracy of Saudi. There was a a, a streaming in Qatar. Uh, So I know that this is one of the elements that is being used to persuade the Premier League not to okay that. Uh, But there's been a number of voices coming from journalists and Human Rights Watch organizations saying that we can't allow that to happen because this is sports washing. And this is not the first time that we are witnessing something like that any international sports competition that is held in the country when human rights are being violated is put to question. So if you think about uh, FIFA in Qatar, uh, Nepali workers keep dying there because of poor working conditions. So those countries, again, this is public relations, they're trying to enhance their reputation on an international scale because it allows it helps them to strike trade deals uh, and it helps them with diplomatic efforts but because the the work is not done on the ground level so whatever they say is not backed up by what they do this still has a negative impact on their reputation and again this is against the principles we teach our students but we teach them those principles by looking at those international case studies
0: but this is a tension in, in public relations that's existed before the term public relations this actually came about because propaganda was, I don't know if anybody's familiar, you're obviously familiar with Edward Bernays, do you want to speak? Yeah. tell people about the move from propaganda to PR or is the term PR the way that the term PR came about?
1: Well the term PR is, uh, well I think it was in the seventies when there was over 400 definitions of public relations already. Uh, so there's some international consensus now. So generally it's perceived as building a mutual understanding and, uh, mutual support for each other, like between businesses, uh, NGO organizations, governments, and the publics. So to have this mutual relationship, we need to have a degree of, a high degree of transparency, whereas propaganda is just one way. Um, Now the problem is that, do people actually, this is the problem, and it's a massive problem, do people actually want this mutual level of understanding? Do they want to learn about organizations or do they want to be told what to do? Mm. Uh, And this is why PR is practiced in very different ways in different countries. So in most of authoritarian countries, it's very difficult to talk about PR if we look at the, what the government does because uh, information is being controlled, it's being censored, uh, so there's this sense of manufacturing consent from, side, from the side of PR practitioners. Now, it would be very presumptuous and kind of arrogant of us to sit here and just wag our finger when our governments are not like completely sane. Uh, but there is a distinction between propaganda and what we call public information. So yes. propaganda is considered um, not to be that concerned with the truth, whereas public information, it might be coming, you know, top down communication, but the accuracy of the information is essential. Yes. So we do make that distinction.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's the, the concern with the way in which the government are communicating in the UK around COVID is the, the phrase they adopted was, we're following the science, we're following the science, we're following the science. Now yeah. the question is how often were you following the science and how often did you cherry pick the science that suited the message you wanted to portray?
1: Exactly. And also, I think the climate itself is misleading because, well, as the prime minister said last week or two weeks ago, they were informed by science, but ultimately the decisions are, you know, up to them, um, which is true. And if, should the uh, public investigation into the handling of the coronavirus uh, in the UK follow, um, it's the executive who's responsible. It's not the scientists like they they were on a committee and the government listened to them, but ultimately they made those decisions. And Mm. I think those decisions will be scrutinized, particularly in terms of how quickly the lockdown was uh, imposed, because I think most of us will agree that it was way too late. And um, I've been telling you earlier on that um, there are some countries that are highlighted as like, I don't want to use the word winners, but highlighted as Um, like stellar examples of how they handle coronavirus. And it's no coincidence that uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand has a master's degree in PR and communications. Uh, So the way (laughs) uh, the messages they disseminated were very clear, very concise, but also she utilized effectively social media when she hosted those um, prime ministerial sessions from her bedroom and uh, responded to her citizens uh, in in real life, which didn't happen here. Um, but one of the examples where I want to talk about propaganda and, and like it's positive aspects, but I want to, again, make this distinction. I'm not talking about propaganda when we disseminate fake news and misleading information, but no. the public information model. So an example of a country that handled uh, the coronavirus truly successfully uh, particularly from a communication point of view is Vietnam. Vietnam is an interesting case study because, uh, because of the proximity to China, they have, they shared the Northern border. So their first, um, coronavirus case was reported on the 23rd of January. And in the very same week, all schools got closed and they reopened on the mid-May and what is really striking is that the number of cases they've had uh, was just over 300 and they had zero deaths. Now, there, there's some uh, sceptical voices saying that, well, maybe this is not accurate, it's a communist state, one party state, but there, there's a number of international entities, including a scientist team from Oxford University working at one of the infectious, infectious diseases hospitals who say there's been no cover up but what right. they did was they closed the borders very quickly. Everyone had to undergo 14 days quarantine in really spartan conditions because it was government funded and it's not a rich country. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm, I'm still like in touch with many expatriates living there. So they said that, yes, the, some of them were held for two weeks. Uh, they were fed, tested many times a day. Interestingly enough, 40 percent of those who tested positive, uh, didn't display any symptoms. So this really shows how how scary this virus is. Um, mm. But like I said, um, in in Vietnam, the the government it's obviously it's a one party state. Um, there's a lot of um, censorship going on. So. Um, Promoting democracy openly usually leads to being imprisoned, so the censorship is very, very strong. But the first thing people notice when they come to Vietnam is those massive propaganda billboards and they always like display uh, a, a selection, like a sample of the population. So we have a priest, even though the government is very op- uh, opposed to uh, Christianity because of their history uh, and, and the very, there's quite a few uh, political sensitivities surrounding that. Um, there will always be a farmer, there will always be uh, a woman in a you know, conical hat and white white dress, which is called aoyai. There will be a factory worker and there will be a white-collar worker and there will be most likely Uncle Ho, so Ho Chi Minh, uh, looking at them from the cloud and uh, everyone will have like their eyes and hands possibly raised. And there'll be this call to cultural revolution. So it's got this sense of kind of aesthetics from like the Soviet era.
0: Right.
1: But but this is a very, Common vehicle of uh, communication that the government utilizes throughout the country, so those billboards are everywhere in city centers next to Louis Vuitton shops as well as in small villages where you have farmers with uh, water buffalos. so this is something that everyone is really familiar with, and the government utilized them for the, to spread the messages about the coronavirus. Now, mind you, there was no nationwide lockdown. Uh, they had a very effective uh, track-and-trace system in place, so they only had local strict lockdowns. And there was this sense, uh, not only coming from those billboards, but from the messages the government issued, that this is their patriotic duty to protect everyone else. So here we may talk about this cultural dimension of a society being considered as collectivist when we feel responsibility for all the members of our country. Whereas in some Western countries, it's so individualist that everyone says that those restrictions are affecting their liberties and really? human rights, and they're not going to wear face masks. Now, the results are as we see. So, for example, my colleagues in Vietnam who worked at the Australian University, which has a campus in Saigon, now post pictures. Of the classes resuming, there's no social distancing. They are surrounded by students, whereas we are planning for the whole academic year of socially distant, uh, uh, partly delivered online modules. And I think yeah. I think uh, this public inquiry into the handling of uh, the pandemic here um, is going to to reveal something that I think we already sense. Uh, W- what the outcomes are going to be?
0: Hmm. It's going to be interesting, and how the public responses play out after that as well. Um, Absolutely,
1: you can quite it, a it, see, on messages process. on this messages level. So we NPR will say that we need to be able to coin messages that wa- that are understandable by the publics, and it's all about them being concise transparent and easy, easily understood. So here, I think at first government did a very, very good job saying, coining the slogan, stay home, protect lives, save NHS, the message was really clear. And I think it did. uh, My sense was that at the beginning, everyone was on board with the government. And everyone felt this duty to that, you know, maybe I want I would contract the virus. But actually, I need to do I need to be mindful because of, of, of the citizens that I might pose danger to. Now, with the second message, staying alert, I think. Stay, stay <laughs> alert,
0: look out for bugs.
1: <laughs> I think it all went to tatters because yeah, yeah. they alert and control the virus. So we could see that on a you know on a level even of like how messaging between colleagues changed from. Hope you're staying safe. To humorous, hope you're staying in control of the virus. Mm. So it it just became something that the government did not handle well. And again, we're coming back to this idea of what reputation is, and reputation instills trust of our publics. And what we do is what we what we say. And here, the government did not perform well on that level. With the top advisor checking his eyesight in. Uh, Barnard Castle, and then the father of the Prime Minister travelling to Greece, so again, this is when people become really skeptical of public relations, so um, this kind of lack of blanket ethical approach causes damage to our profession but also to organizations itself, and in this case to the government, because the government has really poor ratings, particularly in terms of handling the, vi- the, the coronavirus. Uh, crisis but also this is where this call for the public inquiry comes from because people no longer trust the government that they follow the signings and I think this is a reasonable claim.
0: Yeah I guess the added layer of complexity is social media as well though because there was for all of the condemnation and criticism of um, Dominic Cummings in the press and amongst politicians and some parts of the public other other parts of the public it almost increased their support for him through through their sympathy for him and saying well those depressed there are hypocrites which in some cases they were and Absolutely. people outside his family home were hypocrites which he, he, they were um and also people who who decided they were loyal to this government and they're loyal to dominic cummings and other things that he stands for actually just upped their game on social media and were like this is old news move on you're just look, trying to look for reasons mm. to get rid of him. So it's, it's this whole other world that we never used to really do have to do think about. Do you see, about.
1: like, when we talk about like marketing, usually we say that this is the blood of the organization. We mm. can sell things to people. I would say that PR, uh, if if we use this metaphor of uh, of a body, is the conscience of the organization. So yeah. again, we need to make sure that the organization. Stands by what they preach, essentially, yes. uh, yeah. and here we can say yes. Some members of the public stood by Dominic Cummings and the Prime Minister. Some opposed, but actually, this whole additional crisis was unnecessary, yes. and it created further divisions in the society.
0: Yeah, yeah, and th- that is another concern that I keep keeps coming up in conversations, even on on this podcast. Is, is polarization really? It's this the that breakdown of conversation and that 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 binary way of thinking and a lack of um that lack of kind of just valuing civilized conversation where people won't actually disagree and mm. it can be okay to disagree but just this i'm entitled to my opinion and that's all that matters and that's it and you're either uh bloody snowflake or you're a Nazi or you know it's just this really divisive um, this recurring and divisive kind of anger.
1: Yeah. I guess I
0: was talking to Karen the other week it stems from fear there's so many different things to fear that people are fearful of that I just think is driving an anger that's pulling so many of us further apart.
1: Absolutely so if you think about public relations and its efforts being around building mutual understanding and trust. I think this is uh, a very important discipline and a a profession and it can be really, really rewarding. And now you just mentioned fear. So um, I'll I'll give an example of how public relations can make a huge change. And this is what students often find very, very rewarding. Um, So in the past, I had the opportunity to work on a health campaign and that was in Dubai and it was about cervical cancer. So if you think about running a campaign, uh, like that in a, in a society that is very conservative and any connotations or to sex and messages are a big taboo. It's a no, no, basically. And all of a sudden, like the organization I worked for, it was a, a, a private healthcare. So they were promoting, cervical uh, cancer screening and also HPV vaccines. Uh, So in the first year, I think the number of patients who underwent free um, screening was about 800, but the following year it was 1500. And you can This is all to do with PR and educating and liaising with different stakeholders. So we got on board a member of the royal family who promoted, she was a female and she promoted it in the media as well. So, you know, regardless where you work, whether it's an authoritarian government or not, there'll always be a scope of work that can be carried out ethically and can lead to a meaningful change. So it's not only, a programme that uh, multiplies the profits of the organisation in question, but something that can really improve the the way society works or improve people's health in this case.
0: Um, The one thing I wanted to give you a chance to talk about is this Women in PR uh, book. Do you want to just briefly talk about what that is and what it did and what it involved?
1: Um, sure. So uh, basically there's uh, a number of researchers that uh, I had the pleasure to collaborate with. They are from uh, Quadriga University in Berlin and, um, their concern is about how women working in PR are perceived and what kind of obstacles they face. Now, if you look at press coverage from Dubai, for example, it says that this is a great place for uh, women in PR. And there's a number of uh, high executives who are female or uh, a number of uh, females from the royal family saying, we have like the best environment for women in PR. Right. Um, on the legal level, gender pay gap is illegal basically. So this is, this is what it is like on the, on the paper. But uh, if you look into it a little bit deeper, if you are let's say a single female PR practitioner or a female in any profession that's fine you don't have to ask anyone for the right to work right as long as you have your business visa but if you are married your husband has to give you a letter of no objection so a colleague of mine who works at uh, at the university in Berlin. When she lived in the UAE, she had to ask her husband to write a letter of no objection for her to open a bank account. And I'm talking, it's like 2016, 2017, open a bank account, dri- uh, get a driving license and work. So this puts women in very precarious position, particularly women who are not from like Western countries because mm. this gives uh, you know uh, this kind of a way of of power abuse because it does place power in man 's hands now in um, in organizations uh, they are very very uh, hierarchical, so there is very little um communication on a vertical level like bottom up it's top down now what is interesting is that uh, very often, in this kind of cultures, people do access the status quo because it makes them feel safe like a, like the, this hierarchy gives them a sense of a place, and they are not inclined to question it um, so um, But this has a really bad impact on public relations, because as I said, the role of PR practitioners is also to educate top management on how to be an organization with a good reputation inside out. So if PR practitioners don't have access to what we call the dominant coalitions of decision makers, then they can't have any influence on the decision-making process uh, and how organizations act. So usually they'll be delegated just to being a mouthpiece of the organization. I'm not saying that the organization necessarily has to be unethical, but there is, this is not uh, something that we promote as a profession. As a profession, we should have the voice at the table where the decisions are being made. In other countries, there was, there's been like this tradition of uh, female practitioners being a bit of a hostess to entertain foreign uh, business entities. And I think right. this is a great, a, a, a great damage and a great shame. Uh, but things are changing. So um, like I said, maybe in the UAE there are some problems. But since the legislation changed, I think social change will follow. So those changes will take a while. Uh, a report from uh, PWC said that it's going to take about 150 years. So perhaps not during our lifetime.
0: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> but this, uh, this, sorry, just so I'm following, is this what you're outlining in is this your chapter in the book? Is this your case study? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, and, so, then, and there's loads of contributors in the book, isn't there? All from different backgrounds and PR and different Yes, experiences. there's people
1: from, from over ten countries. Um, there's also there's one male contributor uh who writes about how um the COVID-19 can actually help women get uh deserved recognition in the field of public relations
0: all right okay yeah
1: and interestingly enough in the uk most of practitioners i can't remember the percentage so i'm not going to make up some figures now but the majority of practitioners are females however the higher you go in the seniority in organisations the less females are there so right. this is a big issue for the industry here as well but like I said it's a it's a relatively young discipline a relatively young uh, profession so I think things will change
0: but yeah and as an academic discipline it's 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 growing um, but we saw what was we talking a couple of weeks ago about journalism studies over the last couple of decades has grown and grown, it's become this massive academic discipline. And I think that's inevitable with, with public relations as well. Absolutely.
1: I think like I said at the beginning of our conversation, we all can see that every organization, whether it's a minor startup or a multinational entity, they have to be able to communicate with the publics effectively, particularly in times of crisis, when they have to act fast and be able to convey messages that are understandable for everyone and be able to instill certain behaviours as all governments have to do now.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to take away from the conversation really is that teaching public relations and understanding the importance of public relations being an ethical practice, but also using that ethical practice as a as a critical lens to scrutinise public relations when it's not done well, is the really kind of constructive way forward for the for the the industry and the academic discipline itself. So, um, okay, well, we're definitely out of time. Um, time flies by when <laughs> you're yeah, we'll talking PR. I not
1: realise. <laughs>
0: but thank you very much for coming on and thank you very much for being a brilliant colleague and also for making our students very happy when they come to the UK and study with us. Um, I know they have a very good experience on our programmes, um, home students and international and a large part of that's down to you. So thank you very much and I hope people Mm -hmm. found your your, uh, insights interesting today and I'll speak to you again soon, thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Sarah. Bye bye.
0: Bye. Bye.